Lord Jesus, we thank you that you just keep fulfilling your promise to be with us. And the truth is we're not always aware of your presence. But Lord, I pray today you would make us even more aware of your presence, not just because we're here in church and with your people, um, but Lord, make us aware that you love us, even in the midst of our doubt and our confusion. Lord, make us aware of your kindness to us, even in the midst of a world that is anything but kind. We pray that you would just move in our hearts today. Um, we don't believe this stuff easily, and so that's why we're here, and that's why we're together. That the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I began following Jesus about two months uh, before my 21st birthday. And prior to that, the only times I went to church on Sundays was when I had little choice, uh, which included whenever I visited my mom and stepdad in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, particularly when I was in college. Even then, uh, if I could get out of it, I would. But on a particular December Sunday when I was, uh, I was home from college, I didn't get out of it. And so uh, I was there in my parents' church. The pastor finished his first 20-minute sermon, which was always filmed for television. And then he started on another 30 minutes, presumably firing from the hip. Uh, it included a bit of a detour uh, to complain about young people walking around in baggy pants, dyed hair, sticking up everywhere, he said. Uh, I just happened to be sitting there with bleach blonde hair, sticking up everywhere and wearing Jinkos, which were arguably the baggiest jeans on the market in 1996. If you know me, I never did anything and still probably don't do anything halfway. So I had no choice about my attire. I was the bass player in a short-lived funk rock band called Future Heads, which is short for Future Heads of State. It was an ambitious title that we actually stole from a then-defunct band um, you know, the, the 90s were, they were the best of times and the worst of times for garage bands. So maybe you were a part of one. But honestly, I'm sitting there and I was mostly unbothered by his complaint because it really only reinforced my view of the church and of preachers and such at that time. And this particular televangelist, uh, come to find out, he had left the pharmaceutical industry after having this vivid dream of people riding this long descending escalator out of sight, out of his sight. And apparently he had one of these moments, kind of like what we see in Revelation today. Uh, he asked God who these people were and where they were going, and God answered him, they are going to hell. So he left his job for ministry to become a preacher. And as the mid-80s rolled around, he rolled in the television cameras to take the salvation message to local television. And I'm not telling you this to throw shade on him at all. By all accounts, he was sincere and passionate. More than that, his approach to ministry, it actually represented a significant cross-section of evangelism in America uh, in the 20th century. The momentum of nearly two centuries of revivalism was still going strong. After jumping onto the radio waves and then into stadiums with things like uh, the Billy Graham crusade and then through satellite and cable television. So fast forward in my life about seven years to a class that I took in grad school called History and Theology of Evangelism. And it was really eye-opening to me 
Among other um, surprises, I found out that Billy Graham, who, as most of you probably know, the 20th century's biggest name in evangelism, um, he lived with a constant anxiety about how many people were flooding the altars at his crusades, which is such a terrible name, right, for calling, a, you know, a ministry of evangelism. But they'd flood the altar of his crusades, but were apparently never darkening the doors of a local church. Something like 70% of those who would come down we're not ending up in churches. So he partnered with a guy named Dawson Trotman of the Navigators Organization, maybe you've heard of it, to try to follow up on getting people discipled, getting them connected to churches and so on. And that effort might, you know, could be deemed successful or, um, or to have failed depending on how you want to measure it. It moved the dial a little bit, which is a good thing. And I think it shouldn't be surprising um, to us that this kind of evangelism to the masses, it came as a reaction, actually, to some of the, the problems that existed in the church, first in England. Arguably, this movement of evangelism began with John and Charles Wesley and their contemporaries, who, they were clergymen, who they began preaching out in open-air spaces, which was anathema to a lot of people, but they're going out there and singing and preaching because the churches in England had become unwelcoming places for anyone without money or status. Imagine that. It's mind-blowing. The Industrial Revolution uh, had begun in full swing here. It was driving men and women and children out of the fields where they had been working, out of the commons that they had shared to, to raise crops and do other things, and it was pushing them into uh, demoralizing factory work, just creating awful conditions for those of the lower social class. And this, in turn, as you might imagine, it took a massive, had a massive effect on the social order. Things were really bad. There was misery and drunkenness and debauchery and abuse all on the rise, particularly child abuse. It appeared that the church of that era, though, had nothing to say about the plight of the common man, except maybe get yourself together or otherwise stay away. So the Wesleys and many others with them, they went out. They renewed their commitment to the Great Commission that we read every last Sunday of Epiphany, this call to go and make and baptize disciples. Their particular movement or revival became what we know today as Methodism, where they were in ones and twos and fives and tens, they were teaching new believers the way of Jesus, even if the churches around them had long forgotten it. If we're honest, there are probably a thousand ways the church can get the Great Commission wrong. And probably a thousand reasons for doing that. Evangelism is hard. Discipleship is inefficient. But fundamentally, all our missteps and all our reasons come back to either, I think, forgetting, downplaying, or disbelieving the details of the gospel. And in particular, the very occasion of this calling right here and these words of Jesus on that mountain in Galilee to his 11 disciples who are still trying to figure it out. And guess what? In many ways, we still are. So let's have another look at that moment. We begin in verse 16. 
The 11 disciples are following the instructions of the resurrected Jesus to meet him back where they first met him in their home region of Galilee. And it says the 11 to set them apart, but also, and I heard one biblical scholar say, they're very 11-ish at this point, right? They've just gone through losing Judas in the way that they had, and they're just, I mean, Jesus has risen and shown himself, but man, they're in a state, understandably. But Jesus says, go back home, and go to this mountain. And most scholars believe it's no accident that Jesus wants to actually remind them where it all began for them when he called them, when they first came to know who he was, when they first began following him. If we're honest, I think our most profound moments with Jesus are just too easy to forget as the years and as their difficulties pile up on us. Where we began with Jesus and what we've been through, it gets really easily obscured when what's in front of us is painful or feels impossible. But remembrance, remember this. Remembrance is everything for God's people. It's just shot throughout the whole story over and over at greater and greater depth. Remembrance is everything. It always has been. It's everything for people because we so easily lose ourselves under the weight of the present. We are the forgetters. So the mountain, so Jesus takes them back to Galilee and then he takes them back to a mountain. It's important. Not only does a mountain figure uh, prominently throughout Israel's history, those, the history of encountering God, these encounters with God, but at least six different times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is saying and he's doing some really important things where? On a mountain. He's tempted on a mountain in chapter 4. He preaches his famous sermon on the mount in chapter 5. In a mountain, uh, on a mountain in chapter 15, he serves a miraculous meal to thousands. In chapter 17, he is transfigured or revealed in some sense, lifted up on a mountain in front of his disciples with Moses and Elijah next to him, who, by the way, met God on a mountain. And in chapter 24, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives when he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in 70 A.D., and the persecution that his disciples are going to face, all from a mountain. So Jesus takes them back to Galilee and the mountain because the call to make disciples actually must begin by remembering. Verse 17 tells us there they worshipped him, but some doubt it. And that's another really important thing to pay attention to. For the second time in this chapter alone, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is to be worshipped as God. Otherwise, his disciples, they're violating the, the first of the Ten Commandments right here, right? But they aren't violating it. To them and to us, Jesus is not some appendix to the one true God. He is God's self-extension down to our level, down to us. Jesus is not God's annex. He is God's presence. In Him alone and with Him, we have communion with the one true God, which is the, uh, this communion that we have, it is the possibility for, it is the context for our worship. We are not like so many pagan civilizations before us who are just trying to get ourselves up to God, building ziggurats and towers and in these, these high places, if we can just get the God to come down, our God has come to us. He is Emmanuel. 
This is what makes worship possible. St. Augustine, he made this beautiful comment about this moment of seeing and worship uh, and worshiping Jesus here um, as as Jesus is sending them out on mission. This is what uh, Augustine said. He said, what do we not see that these saw? Christ present in the flesh. But what do we see which they saw not? The church throughout all nations. And here's what he says. He says, let what we have respectively seen help us. The sight of Christ helped them believe in the future church. The sight of the church helps us believe in the risen Christ. But some doubted. We have to make room for that. They worshiped, but some of them doubted. Matthew tells us, or, you know, they also had some doubts. It might have been that a few of them doubted and the others were worshiping, or it may have been that they worshiped and they also had some doubts. It can be translated both ways, but either way, doubt was present. It could also be translated, as it is elsewhere, that they hesitated. They worshiped, but they were like, I don't know. Listen, Matthew could have left this part out, right? He could have sanitized the whole thing and left all the doubt out of this, and they worshiped, they saw Jesus on the mountain, but he didn't leave it out because it matters. In the 5th century, um, St. Jerome, the church father, he applied this fact very succinctly. He said, their doubt helps our faith. Their doubt helps our faith. By reporting this honestly, Matthew, he tells his readers, he tells his church, he tells these these disciples that, that their discipleship, that ours, that our following Jesus is lived in the very human struggle between the spirit of worship and the presence of doubt. I've never met any honest person following Jesus who doesn't still have some doubts. Certainly there were times that Jesus pointed out that his disciples' doubts could be a limitation, but not always. Think about when in Luke 17, the disciples, they asked Jesus, hey, I don't think it's in us. They say, increase our faith. They didn't feel like they had anything to hold on to maybe to get there. But what he didn't, he didn't tell them how to do that. It's interesting. What does he say? How does he respond? He said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that mulberry bush to be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. It's hyperbole. It's, it's dramatic. But what he's saying is, what's he saying? He's saying, expect great things with just ordinary faith. presence of some doubt, it doesn't mean the absence of all faith. It doesn't disqualify us, and it doesn't have to paralyze us. It simply is. Above all, our doubt doesn't paralyze Christ, who is the one doing the work and giving the authority. Because Christians are both doubters and believers, adoring and wondering, trusting and questioning. This isn't a problem for Matthew, doesn't seem to be a problem for Christ, and so it shouldn't be a problem for us. And instead of addressing their doubts on the mountain, Jesus tells them what he wants them to do. He doesn't seem to be working from any sense of disqualification here. What does he do? He commissions them. He doesn't seem to believe that his disciples, them or us, have to have 100% certainty to act, to obey, to follow. And you could argue Jesus is teaching his disciples here that they will best confront their doubt by acting. 
by obeying, by leaning in. And I think, you know, our rationalistic era tends to get faith backwards, believing that faith uh, lives exclusively in our heads. But it doesn't. It lives in our bodies, too. Faith isn't reduced to a set of propositions that you've accepted. Faith is the will to act in pursuit of knowing, and faith is the act itself. 20th century theologian, probably one of the greatest, Albert Schweitzer, he famously said this. He said, follow him and you will know him. I don't think there's any other way. You can't do all the knowing on the front end because after that, it's not faithing. Now, I just want to point out three of the not-so-obvious details of the call that Jesus issues, beginning here in verse 18, if you want to look at it with me. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. First of all, our translation in the ESV uh, for the verb for Jesus came is way too vanilla, to be honest. It's too vanilla. Because 50 of the 52 uses of that verb, proselthon, in Matthew, they are reserved for petitioners particularly coming to Jesus, moving toward Jesus. It's more active than just showing up, as it sounds like here. It's more like Jesus came near to them. Like it was a gesture, it was a, mo- a, a moment, it was a movement near to these imperfectly believing disciples. He came to them in earnest where they might be hesitating what's happening. Jesus is leaning into them. He's closing the gap to call them. Friends, that's how it works. That's how it works. The second thing to pay attention to are the very words Matthew records Jesus saying, specifically the adjectives. In these five short lines, there are five alls. Four explicit, one implicit. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Pasa. And Jesus is pulling language here from Daniel 7. All authority. All nations. Panta. All that I have commanded you. Panta again. And I am with you all the days. Passah again. And implicitly, all of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nothing is held back. All of God in all His authority for all the nations, with all the truth, for all the days ahead, whatever they bring. All. If you're wondering why this is uh, called the Great Commission, there it is. All. All. And the third crucial detail is the structure. Matthew records this call to evangelism as what I'll just call, maybe sort of rough-handedly, a Jesus sandwich. Begins with his authority, puts the disciples in the middle, and ends with the promise of his presence. Well, let's do it like a sandwich. His authority... Us, the disciples in the middle, and his presence, holding it together. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So then, therefore, you go. You can go because I'm calling you and empowering you. I've been given the authority, so you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the family of the triune God. You teach them all the things you heard me say on the mountains. And behold, I'm with you. And we'll be with you to the end of the age, all the days. The life of a disciple and a disciple maker is a Jesus sandwich. Jesus first, Jesus last, Jesus always. He's holding it together. And listen, 
25 minute sermon just isn't enough time to say everything here, but let me just briefly talk about what Jesus is specifically telling them to do when he tells them to make disciples. Make disciples. This isn't the making of converts. Converts will come to just about anything. Look at any number of documentaries on Netflix, right? They'll come often. They'll come only so far, and then they'll go. But to make a disciple is a different thing. Making a disciple will be the patient, the present, hands-on work of shaping a life with your own life, but not based on your own life. To make a disciple is to make Jesus real to another by passing along to them, as best we can, the life Jesus actually lived, the words Jesus actually said, and a vision of the world that Jesus actually wants. But notice that baptism comes before teaching, and it always has, and that's not an accident. It's important. The work of the Spirit through baptism precedes and undergirds. It strengthens the work of the disciple-maker to teach and the disciple to learn. Being baptized in or into the name of the triune God means we become the possession of God as children in that divine family, dependent. Into the name is actually, in that day, it's a, it's a banking term which might seem weird, but what is Jesus saying? He's saying by baptism, we become beneficiaries of the assets of God. Beneficiaries, or as we find over and over in the New Testament, heirs of God, and as Paul told the Romans in chapter 8, joint heirs with Christ. We belong. We become God's responsibility for him to bless and to sustain and ultimately to resurrect us. We belong to God. Jesus' disciples are then taught to do what? To keep absolutely all the commands of Jesus. Panta hosa, literally all whatever. All of them. But here's the thing. To be sure, Jesus has already said in chapter 19 of Matthew that this is impossible with human beings, but with God, everything is possible. So Jesus isn't simply moralizing here and suggesting that the list is what matters. He's saying that the life, uh, the, 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 the life of future disciples, it has specific detailed guidance and norms and correctives and expectations It has imperatives. They aren't a means to earning eternity, but a life for living eternity now. Life that is truly life. Teach them to live by what I have taught you. Fact is, they're going to, we're going to be taught something. We're going to live according to something. I had an unbelieving neighbor, zero church experience whatsoever, lived across from me uh, when I lived in Greer. And after finding out that we are Christians and then that I am a pastor, she once said to me, how can you feel good about indoctrinating your children? Which was like, oh, front yard talk. How can you feel good about indoctrinating your children? To which I replied, well, how do you feel about indoctrinating yours? Everybody's being taught something. It must be my teaching, my words, Jesus is saying here. This is the life that is truly life. He wants them to see and hear all the mountains again. Everything he's taught to share that reality and then some, not just what he said, but what he lived before them. This is what you, I want you to bring to the world. 
This is the world that I want. And this is the only world that coheres when it lives according to the truth and according to life and dependent on me. And he concludes with the promise that he will indeed be there with them and with us all the days ahead of us to the end of the age. Every day that we live is gathered up meaningfully toward a certain end. Nothing is wasted in the presence of Jesus, even the worst of it. Friends, this may be the very core of the whole biblical witness, the withness of God. This promise of the Lord is the most common expression of reassurance in the Hebrew Bible. I will be with you. It never means complete protection from difficulty or challenge, but it is an anchor for our courage and our wisdom in the midst of these things. So today, the last thing you're going to hear in this service is, what, is that dismissal that we have. It says different things at different times right now. It just says, go forth in the name of Christ. And I want to encourage you to bring, as we come to the table, I want to bring your doubts, bring your fears, bring your hesitations down here. Give them to Jesus. Maybe you don't think of this as an exchange. It's not like you're giving him anything that he ultimately needs or wants. But we're offering him the, the truth about our lives. We're even opening up and saying, hey, empty, so that he can fill us. It's how he promised to be present to us. And as we're so powerfully reminded of Jesus' communion with us in here, I want to encourage you to simply just ask what his promised presence might mean out there as you go as you move toward the people in your life who are far from him. He is not far from them, nor from us. Do you believe it? Lord, help us to believe it. You're good to us, even when we're not good to you or to one another. And that's what makes you good. Be with us today. Let just these words fill our hearts and our minds for your sake. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.